0: Welcome, everybody, to Bridge Builders Communities Church Sermon Podcast. You are listening to one of our messages from our weekly gathering. We hope that you sit back, and enjoy, and be blessed. have Pastor Curtis just a a while ago speaking the word to us and Jeff is next week but uh, you know I met Dwayne the same night that I met Pastor Curtis where you invited me to this impromptu meeting well it was impromptu for me anyways I have come to love you as a a dear dear brother and I I can't imagine my life without you I really can't I mean uh, I feel like I've known you all my life (laughs) even though it's been really just three years Dwayne is this, this wonderful guy who, if you don't already know that, you probably do, but he hes like me in this, in this respect. We are both visionaries. But what he has that I don't have, he can put those visions into practical steps and, and make things happen. I just have visions, and people, I try to be crazy. <laughs> so I'm glad he's in my life just for that part of my life, but, but his friendship has made me a better man. And, uh, so I'd just like you to welcome my brother.
1: Thank you. And uh, my, my visions can drive my wife uh, crazy sometimes, so Amen, thank you all If you have your Bibles Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 So I want to thank Bridge Builders uh, for the opportunity to speak today I, I can't say that I've had a more Peaceful sermon prep of knowing that I was walking into speaking to family and friends and believers that I guess share a kindred spirit, if you will. Uh, In our prayer time, right, and and learning and personally growing in relationship at the Potter's House, and for me spiritually, really learning what that even meant. Right, I I grew up in a Baptist church, but it was very transactional. And so for this season in my life and knowing Jay and Pastor Curtis and, and all of you, that, that relational peace, the humanity of it, has really blessed me. I want to recognize my beautiful wife and my children uh, who are in the back, Abigail, Elliot, and Adam, for just being great kids. Um, and let's pray for a moment. Dear God, uh, I thank you for the the your presence that's in the room right now, that's in each and one of our hearts and minds. There's an army rising up, dear God. There isn't a a more opportune time, I think, to talk about race and the gospel and our role in that and how we are to stand and and to be and to love and serve uh, in our generation, in our time. And I thank you, Lord, for what I believe you've given me to present and that. Given the weight of the topic, dear God, for uh, a sensitivity to your spirit that uh, transcends me, uh, my abilities, uh, for all the different experiences that are in the room, uh, I just pray for your grace and mercy right now uh, in this message. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Um So, uh, Jay and I have had uh, a lot of talks. Um, We've had discussions on racism inside and outside of the church. And as I started to prepare the sermon, um, the weight of the topic, right, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's charged. It's a lot of viewpoints. And so um, as I sought the Lord, I heard the Lord say, just focus on what I've already done. Focus on what I've already done, Right. And when I think about my personal life and where I grew up, um, I, would, I, I fortunately, and I praise God for this, never had to experience necessarily overt racism, right? There was, there was the kid in elementary school that called me a nigger, and it was like, I felt like he just needed to get it off his chest. Like, I
2: felt
1: like he just... Like, I, was, I literally gave him a pass. I'm like, oh, you just needed to say that, right? Um... His his older brother and sister, these were literally next door neighbors, um, and uh, the older brother and sister like were like about to like murder him, like they were appalled, they told mom and dad, mom and dad went in, they called me over, we talked, like they made it very clear, right? Um, and, and that was kind of that. But in general, I've had very healthy multicultural, right, racial relationships, and we credit that to a lot of uh, people, individuals, um, so can you go to the next slide, so I titled this sermon, what a, we've come a mighty long way, and God has brought us a mighty long way, I think as people, and uh, what I submit to you today is that through the gospel and through individuals' faith, they were led towards this idea of racial reconciliation, next slide. So while there's still much work to do, the gospel for centuries has motivated individuals to be agents of change and fight for humanity and racial equality. Today I want to share some of those individuals with you and what they fought for and achieved when driven by Christian values. I believe their example is relevant today more than ever, especially as race relations in this country and the globe are becoming more divided and hostile, right? the extension of, of race relations with the immigration debate, right? It can go a number of different ways. So the first one, next slide, slavery, right? How, how do we not deal with this, particularly in America? you got to tackle this issue, right? Like this, <laughs> like, whoa, wait a minute, right? So for context for us today, um, what I hope to present is is, is some context. Um Historical records show that Islam and Christianity played an important role in enslavement in Africa. The Arab-controlled, trans-adherent slave trade helped to institutionalize slave trading on the continent. And during the Age of Expedition, European Christians witnessed caravans loaded with Africans en route to the Middle East. Others arriving much later in West Africa observed slavery in African societies, leading them to assume that African enslavement was intrinsic to the continent. It wasn't racial; it was just, it's just just how they did business. For many of these early European explorers, the Bible was not only regarded as infallible; it was also their primary reference tool. And those looking for answers to explain differences in ethnicity, culture, and slavery found them in Genesis nine twenty-four through twenty-seven, which appeared to suggest that it was all a result of sin. In time, the connection Europeans made between sin, slavery, skin color, and beliefs would condemn Africans. In the Bible, physical or spiritual slavery is often a consequence of sinful actions. While darkness is associated with evil, moreover, the Africans were subsequently considered heathens bereft of Christianity, although scholars now suggest that Christianity reached Africa as early as the 2nd century A.D., and that Christian communities in North Africa were among the first in the world. However, Europeans doubtlessly refused to acknowledge the relevance of African Christianity as it appeared irreconcilable with the continent's cultural surroundings. You can't possibly be slaves if you're still living in huts and enslaving people. That's their rationale. Religion was also a driving force during slavery in the Americas. Once they arrived at their new locales and enslaved Africans, uh, enslaved Africans were subject to various processes to make them more compliant, and Christianity formed part of this. Ironically, although the assertion of evangelization was one of the justifications for enslaving Africans, very little missionary work actually took place during the early years. In short, Religion or salvation, saving them, got in the way of money-making ventures by taking Africans away from their work, right? We need them in the field so we can make money. We don't have time for them to get education and, and Christian values. It also taught them potentially subversive ideas and made it hard to justify the cruel mistreatment of fellow Christians. So to keep doing what we're doing, we got to ignore the Bible. That's basically what they're saying there, right? Next slide. So in all that, there were Christians that read the Bible, and we have the abolitionist movement. And these are some examples of the people that were instrumental. For me, this was right, part, a lot educative. It's a very diverse group of people, right? So Christian abolitionism, abolitionism emerged from the evangelical revival of the 18th century. While some clergymen were using Christian scriptures to propagate slavery... Others were scouring the Bible to end it. Although evangelicals tend to receive most of the credit for this, the origins of Christian abolitionism can be traced to the late 17th century and the religious society of friends or Quakers, which had their founding in the Northeast. A segue for a minute. Right now, the Northeast is recognized as one of the most uh, uh, hostile or or anti-Christian regions in America right now. But when we look historically, this was the foundation in bedrock for a lot of these movements. Blew my mind, right? Um, Since their establishment in the mid-17th century, Quakers had faced persecution for their beliefs, which stated that everyone was equal in the sight of God and capable of receiving the light of God's spirit and wisdom. Again, this spiritual warfare, right? We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Several of their founders, including George Fox and Benjamin Lay, encouraged fellow congregants to stop owning slaves, and by 1696, Quakers in Pennsylvania officially declared their opposition to the importation of enslaved Africans into North America. Quakers in Philadelphia and London debated slavery at their early meetings in the 1750s. And fellow Quaker Anthony Benzinette, some historical count of uh, Guinea, became required reading for abolitionists on both sides of the Atlantic. For instance, it informed John Wesley's thoughts upon slavery 1774, which in turn influenced British Christian abolitionists and was said to have inspired the former slave trader turned clergyman John Newton to break his decades of silence about his involvement in the slave trade. He had to confess. Many early Christian opponents of slavery came from congregations such as Congregationalists, Quakers, Presbyterians, Methodists, and Baptists who were called nonconformists or dissenters. Right? Because they disagreed with the beliefs and practices of the Church of England. They were willing to go against the tide. These Christians were often marginalized because of this. But their counter-cultural stance enabled them to make connections to those who face other forms of persecution. Next slide. So, right after the Civil War, there was a period where there was some sense of equality. Right? During the Reconstruction era that
3: followed... After the Civil War, African Americans had an unprecedented level of uh, civil. There was, right, all of this history. There were black, prosperous communities. Once slavery was uh, laid with, and there was a specific party, they were able to educate themselves and prosper. But with the end of Reconstruction in 1870s began to change. By the 1890s, many of the Southern states introduced laws that significantly restricted political and civil rights of African Americans. Right, we have this parallel with slavery, this economic need to enslave people. And then when blacks were free, they were able to prosper. But then he had this pullback to where, right, the economics had, to, people had the people that money, he had to pull it back because they felt that they were losing uh, their their quality of life. right? Again, this spirit of racism, right? And how it's pulling back and forth throughout the state And all those lost plans, they were restricted voting rights which makes them it significantly more difficult to exercise, and they also pass laws requiring racially segregated facilities. Right? It's institutionalized. So distorted Christian values, distorted the theology, people in, in power, the high levels of education systemically constructed racism, right? It's still here today. These uh, policies became entrenched when the United States Supreme Court in 1896 ruled in Plessy v. Ferguson the law of separate but equal facilities were, was constitutional. And, like they said in our founding documents, this law was established So, next slide. In opposition to that, this group called themselves the Nine Right, we're talking Buffalo, New York, York, based in Ontario, Canada. Uh, The Niagara Movement was a black civil rights organization founded in 1905 by Irishmen, led by W.E.B. Du Bois and William M. Bertrand. I knew nothing about this. Never heard of this Never part of black history, mom. But these individuals had the education right They organized themselves, and made it very clear And I think that that uh, spoke wrong. It was named for the mighty current of change the group wanted to affect the Niagara Falls and reports, Table. Uh, uh, where the first meeting took place in July of
2: 1905,
3: the Niagara movement was a call for opposition to racial segregation and disenfranchisement. And was opposed to policies of accommodation and conciliation promoted by African-American leaders such as Washington. So within the black community, there, there was this additional, right, uh, a division or conflict. Yet some black leaders were like, no, we need equality we need and integration and, and they would have the same functions same spaces. And you had another group who was saying, hey, look, let's stay separate. Just make sure we have equal schools. multicultural group, particularly um, Mary White Ogington, was one of the founders of the NAACP. In the time, right? It was a multicultural group. It was black and white coming together. Right? Lost names, of it, right? Those things that undergird this idea of racial reconciliation that's been functioning throughout history are logical in front of us. It's just that our awareness, right? And so we're constantly wondering, and even today, NAACP is considered a predominantly black organization, right? I mean, if, if I was talking to tonight, maybe you shouldn't or couldn't get involved. It wasn't. It wasn't the case. Um, so, again, and again, some grace here, right? Mary White-Colenton was born in, in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, the suffrage movement, she was a socialist, a Unitarian journalist, and co-founder of the NAACP. Her parents, members of the Unitarian Church, were supportive of women's rights and had been involved in the anti-slavery movement. So, generations of the abolitionists, those ideas carry on, they have kids, they pass their values on to their kids, and their kids are continuing to fight the fight. Um, Educated attackers, people... Uh, Radcliffe College. Ovid became involved in the campaign for civil rights in 1890 after Frederick Douglass speak in Brooklyn church. Brooklyn. Brooklyn. <laughs> right? I'm like, yeah. Sorry, right? right? It all happened right. in New York, basically. Right. In 1895, she helped found 3.7 in Brooklyn, uh, which is not about to be Polish, working class neighborhood. Appointed head of the project on the year. Oakenton remained until 1904 when she was appointed fellow of the Greenwich House Committee on Social Investigations. Over the next five years, she studied employment and housing problems in Black Manhattan. During her investigations, she met William DuBois, an African-American from Harvard University, and she was introduced to the founding members of the United Movement. And that's how that all started. Next person. Settima Poinsetta heard this person? Both <laughs> feet, right? you know, okay. One or two three, um, Septima Clark was an African-American educator and civil rights activist ad- Clark developed the literacy and citizenship workshops that played an important role in the drive of voting rights and civil rights for African Americans and civil rights so, Timus Clark's work was commonly underappreciated by Southern male activists. Right? So, right, not just racial, right? Not yet women being oppressed. She became known as the queen mother or grandmother of the civil rights movement in the United States. Martin Luther King commonly referred to Clark as the mother of the movement. I was blown away when I Clark's argument for her position in the civil rights movement was one that claimed knowledge could empower marginalized groups in ways that formal legal equality couldn't.
2: Knowledge
3: could empower marginalized groups in ways that formal legal equality couldn't. It required relational component to go to those who were least reached and train and teach and love and serve them versus this idea that you, uh, Mike mentioned higher education of going to Albany to lobby, right? Let's go do that and all the while ignore the actual people that right? Her view was we have to empower, educate the people. So, from a faith perspective, Clark attended the church for her husband's family, which was at AME uh, Church. Uh, she found this church to be much more of a community than her church uh, in Charleston, the uh, United Methodist Church. And throughout the course her religious journey in life, she found there are many ways to serve God rather than only one correct way. Mm-hmm. She went on to teach at the Island Hope School, which um, basically was the, the, the educational system, that, the, the counter school for, for the people to share property basic literacy skills and how to vote. You know, right? Voter registration. How to fill out the card. Now, on the caveat, right, the, the, the existence or the opposition to, to voter rights, voter really has gotten more sophisticated. Mm-hmm. Right? We see this in our current events. Mm-hmm. But it's the same basic tactic and strategy in what end of Next slide. So, uh, Right, born Brown versus Board of Education, pretty common um, uh, case here. The case originated with a lawsuit filed by the Brown family, a family of black Americans in Topeka, Kansas, after their local public school refused to enroll their daughter in the school closest to their home. But instead, forced sure her to ride the of a black only school further away. Now, this next person, uh, next slide. Raise your hand if you've heard of this person, Esther Brown. Thank you. In 1948, Esther Brown, a 30-year-old Jewish housewife in Marion, Kansas, began a fight for racial justice in Kansas' school district. Shocked by the condition of an all-black school in the South Park neighborhood of her African-American maid, Brown took her complaints to the all white School Board, which was then supporting a bond issue for a roller equipped new school program. At the age of 10, her mom died of cancer, she was raised by her father, who was not necessarily religious, but was socially conscious and a member of several like legal organizations. I come to the, the, the Jewish Yale now. As the suit progressed, Brown helped organize a boycott of the all-black school, and set up new private schools that educate the students instead. She created an entire school district, a school system. Brown paid a price for her activism. She was threatened. There was a cross burning in the yard, and her husband was fired from her job, from his job, and there was a bunch of other stuff in biography. Um, multiple school, school board meetings, ostracized, called during the public gatherings of 300 people. She went in literally by herself and took the brunt of all. You know, expertise and whatever. Um, And there was one quote where she was like, "Hey, we're not even asking for you all to integrate. Just give them a little more money so they're not living in a one, you know, teaching in a one room check. She even had this kind of a a scale for her, where she was like, "I'm not asking you to go that far. We're just saying, hey, give them a little bit more so that they can teach their kids." Mm. Um, She she actually filed a lawsuit in Dr. King's death, Right? Again, we get the we get the headlines, but when we look at the individuals who, by itself, saw something needed to be done and had some results. Mm-hmm. All of that, all of that work, all of those centuries, right, generations uh, for, for racial equality, led to what we call, right, or consider for some, black excellence. All right. We had Obama as president. Congressional black Caucus, um, the civil rights movement, etc. Uh, so now generations have received the benefits of education, equality, and actually raised the standard for generations. So this is this brings us to today. And so I I, I pray for the, uh, the, the, over the next slide where we go from here, the spiritual sensitivity in, in the dialogue in piece. because this is collective, right? I don't want this, is, right? This isn't about who anyone voted for at all? But the next slide. So what do we do with this, right? <laughs> and in terms of current event, we have this polarization in America right now. And this isn't about they really a matter of right? From a race context, estimated Trump election is a type of racially motivated right? spiritual backlash or spirit of racism raising its head. In. Though Satan lost the war, the moment Christ is crucified, the battle rages on and As Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers,
2: against the authorities, against the common powers, or this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The battle against racism isn't merely a fight against
3: any individual, government, system, or law. It's a fight that confronts Satan's demonic forces. Satan attacks individuals and systems. He corrupts people and works through the unjust laws, practices, and traditions they create. He does this both through the government of this world and also through religious institutions that prize culture and tradition above the truth of God's word. We see this propensity clearly in American history. Consider slave-owning preachers or Jim Crow laws, it's imperative to acknowledge the spiritual reality behind the evils. And that these spiritual forces aren't only brothers of the past. There's no doubt social, political, and legal progress has been made regarding racism. Even enough, you might be tempted to think you've moved past it. Nothing would the like right to double war and for Christians to believe that racism in America, and particularly in the church, has been dealt with. And we believe the task of racial reconciliation is over, while divisions that slavery and segregation created between white and black churches remain. We fail to see Satan's hands still at work. The church is meant to be a diverse body of people called by God from every tribe, tongue, and nation to be one in Christ. Yet today's church remains largely divided among ethnic lines. However, we see the bridge this divide. And we must not forget that it is fundamentally a spiritual battle. And Luke 11, 24, 25, we find when an impure spirit comes out of a person it goes through every place to seek rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to this house I left." When it arrives, it finds the house shut, clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked in itself, and they go on, go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse
1: than the first I submit to you that at core, it's a spiritual and ideological war that has multiple fronts. And when the focus is ambiguous, it provides opportunity for spiritual forces to reestablish strongholds. It's 2019, and we're witnessing racial hostilities not seen since the 1950s and 60s. Right? As the body of Christ, we must occupy the house until he returns. In Luke 19:13, the parable of the talents, he calls his ten servants, he gives them gifts, and he says, Occupy until I come. So I found this interesting. It kind of illustrates this idea, right? The picture on the right is some, uh, you know, late 1700s, early 1800s abolitionist material. And then we have Eric Garner on the left. And I think it's indicative of this this. The spirit, right? And I I say spirit of racism, but uh, still seeking the Lord to clearly define what's the root of it. But when we have a a system, right, there's very little similarity in these two pictures, right? Just context and things like that, right? But at the end of the day, Eric Gardner, right or wrong, trying to make a living, economics, right? On the slave catchers, right? Trying to feed their family economics, right? So some examples of the spirit of racism, mass incarceration, the prison industrial complex, uh, education inequality, school to prison pipeline, and Black Lives Matter, right? So this is the other end of the spectrum. Next slide. So there's a resistance that's rising. For me as a Christian black male, it's difficult because that is largely non-existent, right? In terms of a clear agenda, the, the demands, the outcome, right? It, it's, it's a very again. This, this is this example of the distortion and ambiguity I'm talking about, right? We have all this effort, momentum, and voice, and and people talking, but there's no real clear agenda or for resolution, right? The difference about civil so rights was with King; it was very clear uh, demands or expectations or outcomes. Today. This is, uh, in some ways, uh, it's clearly the movement's anti-Christian value. It's anti-male, right? So then, at the same time, we have right mass incarceration with millions of black men, fathers, and from a a Christian standpoint, when you take that out, right, you kind of break down the system. So it it looks good on the surface. There's nothing wrong with the mobilization effort.
3: Not based on values, where we get the gain or the
1: land, the accomplishment or the objective met. It maintains this ambiguous, emotionally charged rah rah rah. Let's sell some merchandise. Let's write, create some hashtags, but nothing fundamentally changes because there's no real clear direction. Right. So. We're all aware of these scriptures, right? Christian unity, racial reconciliation.
3: Uh,
1: It's a natural inclination to feel uncomfortable around people who are different from us and to gravitate towards those who are similar to us. But when we allow differences <laughs> to separate
3: us from total believers, we are disregarding the fear of the teaching. We are to seek out and appreciate people who are not like us our friends. When we do this, we often find there's a lack of pride in people that are different.
1: Next slide. Acts chapter 10, 34 and 35. But God accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right.
3: Next slide. Acts 17
1: that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands next slide Colossians 3.11 here there is no Gentile or Jew circumcised or
3: uncircumcised all
1: it is in all next slide so what do we do right so right here we are
3: I, I believe that as Christians, we should focus
1: on the depravity of the human soul, right? It enables us to look past race, class, education, and focus on the root condition of our hearts and others.
3: It provides a real solution to the root condition.
1: The sin that plagues humanity and society. Our strategy should be to engage each other and our community with the love of God. We should role model spiritual... And
3: racial
1: unity for each other. our children and community and we must stand in the gap and intercede for those marginalized by racism and racial injustice injusti- in our midst and next, sir, case. Um, I'm a firm believer that God has given us uh, wisdom, divine revelation insight for creation um, for solutions and to be able to speak to people in a unique way that uh, is loving right? Any and everything uh, that someone in Black Lives Matter or any other <laughs> whether I look at their humanity and the depraved they Satan whether or not they know Jesus or not that's where I can focus right? And I can still sit and have coffee. a recent I forgot the name of it. Dutchess County Progressive Alliance, something or another. It was a political action group.
3: And I am not take on show up to meeting.
1: Showed up, so I went. <laughs> I got to go. I didn't know what it's about. And they're like, "Wink, you take this on? I'm like, uh, I don't even know what about. So, so the, the
3: struggle,
1: the fight, right? So we're talking about education and quality. This, this is This is right here, right, in Poughkeepsie. Right, they were talking to Kipsy. Um, We're Here to go after policy, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, well, if you, if we know that there's an injustice in terms of finances or whatever,
3: why do we go after that? And, and
1: we're, honestly, they got scared. They were like, they, they said, Dwayne, that's too hard. They knew it was the right thing to do.
3: They knew that that was the root
1: of the issue and what was going on, and some of the, the things that are going on that are, is negatively affecting the children, right, end of the day. The children are losing out. Season activists, they were like, no. And I was like, I'm not saying any of this is easy, but if we're not willing to do the hard thing. So, this idea of race in the gospel, I believe that God's word is clear. It's There's evidence throughout history.
3: I believe the church, there's a lot of effort around it. Um,
1: but this idea
3: of racial reconciliation, there's a conflict,
1: there's a fight, there's some self-sacrifice required, and at the end of the day, it it came down to an individual's commitment to it.
3: And of it in
1: some way. With all are with me or none are with me, there were these individuals that did what needed to be done.